Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Uh, my guest today is my pal, Stephen Hyden. He is one of the really excellent writers about music in the world today. Uh, that doesn't mean uh, I agree with him uh, on his musical takes. Um, but uh, I do agree with the general notion that writing about music with the kind of commitment, focus, intensity, and intelligence that Stephen does is essential to how I like to live. I love engaging with thoughtful uh, critiques or celebrations of music, and um, Stephen's essential reading for me. Uh, I've read him for a long time. Uh, we both uh, wrote for Grantland for a period of time. He did in a more formal way and, and longer than uh, I. Uh, he's written um, a number of books. I've read most of them. Uh, his, uh, your favorite band is Killing Me, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock, Hard to Handle, which is Steve Gorman's book, and Steve's been on, but it was written uh, with Stephen, which is the book about the Black Crows, and I have to say it's an outstanding book. Um, uh, he also wrote This Isn't Happening, Radiohead's Kid A in the beginning of the 21st century, which um, it's my, my own fault. It's nobody else's fault, but I'm not a Radiohead fan, so I didn't read that one. And his new book is Long Road, Pearl Jam, and the Soundtrack of a Generation. It's terrific, and obviously I am somebody who cares about Pearl Jam, and so I was really eager to engage with that book. So, uh, Stephen, thanks for being here, man. That was such a nice introduction that I am expecting you now to ambush me about my Jason Isbell list. I feel like is this is all an excuse for you to publicly shame me for my well, Jason Isbell rankings. Talk. I mean, well, of course, no. I I much prefer privately shaming you about those things, like because I want to talk about Isbell and why he why he rewards that kind of consideration, uh, and I want to talk about why we care so much about this stuff. And I want to ask you about that in, in a minute. Really, we can, I guess we can sort of start in this place. Um, also, I should say, are, you're still at Uproxx, right? You still write about music for Uproxx. Yes, yeah, I've been there six years. And you host uh, a few different, tell, what, just say for, for, for the audience, the podcasts that are your podcasts that, you're, that you do. Yeah, so the one that's active right now is called IndieCast, and it's with my friend uh, and fellow critic Ian Cohen, and that's just about, it's like a weekly review show, like Siskel and Ebert of indie rock, and uh, and I've done a few others, but that's the one I'm doing right now. You know, it's funny, I was going to introduce you as a rock writer, which when we were growing up, and you're 10 years younger than me, or 10 and a half years younger, that meant a very particular thing, and and you know, even when you say you're writing about indie rock bands, I mean, that's hilarious to a lot of people because what does that even mean now? And, and is it right. sort of like, you know, um, I don't even know what the equivalent would, it's almost like saying you're writing about the latest and greatest in horse and buggies. And <laughs> so like to those of us who are still way into horses and buggies, it's like, great. But like, cause I was, so I was thinking, I was going to say music writers, you know, um, but do you consider your, I mean, which you are of who, but you know, your books are about rock bands and right. uh, rock music. And, and so where do you, how do you think about that, that question? Um, I know, I mean, I obviously know the tradition from, from which you come, but I would say you and I are among a small group of people who know who Ira Robbins is and why he matters. And so, uh, for, for example, you know, forget Christgau, forget Lester Banks, like things that matter so much to us. I mean, don't even bring up Dave DiMartino, like, they don't matter at all to most people, right? So how do you think of the thing that you're engaged in that's your life's work and mission? Well, you know, I call myself a music critic, but I also call myself a rock critic. And part of calling myself a rock critic is because I write about rock bands and that's what I'm most interested in. And also just of the tradition of people I grew up reading calling themselves rock writers. Like I do that knowing it's an anachronism to some degree, but I still love that as a designation. Um, you know, the thing with music criticism is that you're really talking about a form of writing that a relatively small number of music fans are interested in reading. So you're already talking to a minority of listeners. And then that uh, readership gets carved up 
more when you talk about specific genres that people just you may just want to read about metal or you may just want to read about hip-hop or whatever the case may be i think the key to surviving right now this is true i think in any form of media is and i hate using this word it's it's so corny but you have to have a brand you have to have something that people go to you because they're not going to get that anywhere else and i really feel like it's not as if no one else is writing about the stuff that I'm writing about, but I think the people who read me appreciate, you know, my thoughts on it, where I come from, and that maybe I'm not just covering what everyone else is covering. You know, it, it's really tricky because, you know, I'm a 45-year-old guy, which is really old for a music writer. I, I actually went through a period where I thought I wasn't going to be able to do this anymore because I was aging out of it. And I do feel like the kinds of stuff that I write, it allows me to age a little more gracefully than I would if I were, say, strictly writing about pop music. I do write about pop music sometimes, but if that were my main area of expertise even if I was great at it. And I think I've, I think I do a good job writing about pop music. But at some point, people don't want to hear the 45-year-old guy talking about that. And it has nothing to do with who you are in terms of your work. It's just, it's a weird optic for some readers to take. Well, that you know? gets to what the meaning of the music is and who it's for. And the right. question, right? And, and the question is, is that music... Like I would take Taylor out of the conversation. Taylor's music's for everybody in a way. Like, but generally pop music, it's probably not for uh, uh, us exactly. It's not targeted. Or it's not it's, or it's not up to us to explain why it matters. At least yeah. primarily. Right. You know, it looks a little weird if you have a record made by uh, someone who's like twenty or thirty years younger than you who uh, has a totally different experience. Even if, again, I think it's possible to write about those things if you, if you come from a genuine place. But it, it, So it just, why is it, it okay? And I think it, it, is, it is okay. But I want to ask you, why is it okay? Or if it's okay? To... To consider, to consider uh, Big Thief or to consider Lucy Dacus or to consider Phoebe. Like, those are young people. Right. And mostly making music for their peers, right? And and I, I feel like you are comfortable writing about those kinds of artists. I mean, well, you know, when um, when I was interested in Car Seat and I was going to talk to him, you and I had a con- I called you about it, and like you're obviously incredibly well versed in in all this stuff. But but but, but where do you find your footing in a way to feel like you can, you know, weigh in on those, on those artists. I think the best thing that you can do, like when I write about Phoebe Bridgers, I'm writing about how I feel about her music. Like when I, you know, she puts out a record like Punisher and there's all of these great lyrics on them. And I'm listening to that record from the perspective of someone who's been listening to singer songwriters for, you know, 30, 35 years. So if I write about her, it's really about placing her in the lineage of singer-songwriters and, and coming at it from that perspective. I can't write about her in a generational sense, I don't think, you know, in a way that someone who is of her generation could. I think it's really about finding what speaks to you about a particular artist and being honest about that and not presenting yourself in a way that is trying to be something that you're not you know i that's always my biggest fear uh with being a writer i never want to look like i'm trying to be something that i'm not you know if someone's not going to like my writing at least i know i'm being honest if someone feels like this guy cares too much about rock bands you know and i think that's passe so be it. But I know I'm being authentic to what I care about. And so I think that's all you can do at the end of the day is you, know, you got to be true to yourself and let your intuition guide you as you move forward. Yeah. But do you ever, 
Do you ever worry about, like, I, I guess the way I would look at it is like, a bunch of really smart and good rock writers got a lot of, say, the new wave of British heavy metal bands wrong, or got Van Halen wrong, be, because they couldn't separate Van Halen from what they felt listening to Cream. And so they um, missed the fact that this was once in a generation kind of a band. And so how do you, doing what you do now in this age of such fast information, of and, and also there's now been, at that time there was only 25 years of rock music or 28 years of rock music, right? Now uh, there's been another 40 or 50 years of it. And so how do you try and stay fresh to experiencing the music? In fact, I would say like, yeah, you want to understand it in its lineage, but also how do you grok what's actually going on kind of separate from its lineage? Well, you know, again, uh, and this is just how I approach music, I guess, is that I love the history of music and what gets me excited about hearing me new too. bands yeah. is that it's like the next season, you know, of, of music. It's like, what's going to happen next? Who's going to take what's already been done in a different direction? You know, and a lot of people, as they get older, they get fixed on, well, the way it was when I was young is the greatest yeah. Thing and you can't ever improve that. All anyone does now is rip off stuff from the past. And I don't have that perspective. I'm always excited to see what new artists do with the template. You know, how are they going to shape it in their own image? How are they going to change it? Because as you get older, as I get older, I, I do see the connections that exist between music more than I did when I was younger. When I was younger, it was more about building up walls and saying, this is great, that's terrible, you know, this is has nothing to do with the other thing. And now that I have more perspective, I just feel like, oh, I can I can see how these things that might not seem like they're connected, there actually are some connections there. And, and you put those things together and it builds something else and it goes in this direction. And it's always a fascinating thing. It's also fascinating, I think, to see how young generations react to older music. You know, like there was, there's always some new list of albums where people are trying to reinvent the canon, like Pitchfork recently did the best songs of the 90s and best albums of the 90s. And a lot of the people who were voting on that, you know, were in diapers in the 90s. You know, they're coming yes. at it the way I did with the 60s and the 70s, where there's albums I love, like, you know, like to use Bob Dylan as an example. I love the album Street Legal from 1978, an album that was panned by critics at the time. But I love that record. And I'm sure that annoys some people who were probably writing about music at the time saying, why do you like that album? That album was terrible. In the same way that I might say, well, how can you like, you like that album from the 90s? Really? You know, right. you know but, I, but I love that. I love that, that that's constantly well, that's, being reinvented. That's kind of what's really cool, right, about, um, about that Joker Man podcast. Uh, right Where they're going back and they're like very, with very fresh ears listening to the whole Dylan catalog and talking about it. And then they went on to Lou and, 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 um, and trying to hear it sort of almost devoid of, of context and, um, and fresh, but, but do you think like when you think, cause you know, you know that I like, um, I mean, in an alternate universe, I would be doing what you're doing, right? I'm, I'm exactly the kind of fanatic that you are about this stuff. It lives for me in the same way it li lives for, for you. Like, but I like when we were growing up, and again, and the ten years is really a big difference between us because, in some ways, in some ways it's not. But the movements in music were really consciously, it seems to me, wiping away what came before. Very consciously wiping away what came before. They were, um, you know, Rick Rubin called himself a reducer, and but but the truth is that like each punk was wiping away this kind of excesses that came before it. The new wave of British heavy metal was trying to wipe away um, a certain kind of 
expansive thing that existed that was like kind of not about some real concerns of these people. Uh, and then, you know, um, Pearl Jam and those bands. And then from New Wave of British Heavy Metal came bands that co-opted that, the certain elements of it, to then find their way onto radio by 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 grafting kind of like the things that worked in that music, but adding these ballads, right? And, but but these movements really happened. And journalists like Kerrang was really crucial, right? Enemy sounds and Kerrang. These things, you were five years old when when the first Maiden album came out. I was 15 years old and it was a four, you know, it was like, holy shit, the world changed. Right. And then right. when guns came out, the world changed. And then when Nirvana and Pearl Jam came out, the world changed. I, I find it harder to track. It doesn't seem like music in, in hip hop. It does, but separating hip hop out and I could be wrong. And I open this to you. It doesn't seem like music in the last 15 years is where that, cultural battle is taking place as much any anymore I might which which has you know it used to be you needed journalists to help track that and yeah. and, and perhaps that's why it's more of a looking backward thing is uh, now I mean is that is that illegitimate am I wrong I'm, I'm, I'm open to hearing your thought on it no I mean that's uh, I mean I, I've thought about that too because you're right when I was growing up it was about you know punk coming in to take care of prog rock and then grunge coming in to take care of hair, hair metal and people try to create this narrative about all the new york bands from the early 2000s like the strokes yeah yeah yes replacing new metal although that really wasn't true because there were still really big new metal bands that were much more popular than any of those new york and bands. you know if you think about it that new york times article about the strokes i, I mean i haven't I mean, this is why I'm such a geek about this, like you are. But that article was about the Strokes and the White Stripes together. That first article that was right. about them was right. the two bands together as like moving music forward. And it was true. Jack White obviously fucking changed the world. But but not as a reaction, almost like not really like he was changing the, the, the way the culture thought about music. I don't know. Well, I think the thing... You know, because I go back and forth on this about, well, are we just in an era where there aren't dramatic shifts in music anymore? Or is the fact that the media has just changed so much altered how we view these things? Because, you know, in the 90s, you know, it was easier for journalists to say grunge or alternative rock is what matters because they could silence the people that still liked the metal bands of the eighties, like the hair metal bands, you, you could, you know, MTV could stop playing those videos. Uh, the editors of spin and Rolling Stone could decide that we're not going to cover those bands anymore. And it was just easier to control the narrative. I think now there's just a plurality of voices that exists and there's representation for really everything that's out there. Everything that has a fan base. There are writers who represent that fan base. I think this is why too, you know, people complain about how there aren't as many negative reviews anymore. You know, you don't see really vicious put downs of albums the way you did, uh, you know, in the pre-internet era, which I think is true. But the flip side of that is that you have people who are better informed on genres that were more likely to be slammed. You know, for instance, like Robert Crisco, hates metal you know like you look at his reviews he slams like every great metal record ever made whereas now you know if gun like because i think he gave like a b minus to appetite for destruction and a b minus to back in black just like these canonical records that anyone who likes hard rock music loves those records and nowadays instead of having like a robert crisco review that you would have someone who loves metal reviewing those records someone who understands yeah. what that is which i think is a positive right. Even thing on all songs they would bring right on all songs they would bring someone in to talk about it right, right. if you're if you're listening to all songs considered they're going to bring in the metal person to kind of that's such a great point steven yeah right to you know, give it context right which is a, which is a positive thing but it does result in a media landscape where it just seems like everything gets praised you know like there isn't you know like that that all that sort of general interest critic that 
really thrived in like the 80s and 90s. I feel like that's gone away. Like there's very few writers that I can think of who are known for writing about everything. You know, maybe they write about all sorts of stuff, but they're sort I mean, of known if, for if having Chuck a lane. Wanted to, I mean, Chuck was that if he wanted to do it, basically. But, he doesn't, but even he Chuck... He doesn't... But, 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 you know, Chuck was identified with a certain kind of music. Like if Chuck was writing about a rock record, that was one thing. If he was writing about an R&B record, people would read it, but it wouldn't have the same level of expertise. But he, you know, he, I remember he wrote a piece about tune yards. You know what I mean? So right. like I, I, but he, even he, I'm saying, you know, he became, I guess in a way he doesn't do it anymore. Right. So right. It, he, he got, he, he got too big for it. I mean, Chuck, is, yeah. he's like the last, yeah. um, like superstar music critic, you know, like the, like the, probably the most, I would say the most, uh, sort of respected music critic right now is probably like Hanif Abdurraqib. You know, like he would probably be the guy he has the most notoriety. And I mean, he's like a MacArthur fellow and yeah, he's amazing. Know. I mean, incredible yeah. writer. Yeah. Incredible. writer. So, so he, but, but you know, as great as he is, he's, he's not as famous as Chuck was at his peak as a music writer where, you have characters on the OC reading sex, drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. You know, like that is a level of pop culture penetration that I've, I kind of wonder if he's like the last link in that chain, you know, because he got in right at the end where music magazines really mattered, you know, and then he was able well, to just go on and write about everything. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if there's, um, if those people are now more like, well, in a way, like the truth, like Truffaut would write about film. Like, I wonder, in a way, like if Ezra and Jake have kind of taken some of that space, um, yeah. you know, where these pot, like, because there are people who now have giant audiences who are the people who give context. Like, you know, between Jokerman and Ezra and Jake's two-part Bob Dylan thing, it was like, okay, there's suddenly this again another cultural examination of. Of Bob, you know, and I mean, obviously you're really doing this. I mean, and I guess what, what is it that is so crucial to people like us about forming opinions about music? Like, why do we want to argue about music? And like, what are we really chasing down when we engage in those conversations? Like, well, is it about defining ourselves in relation to the, the music and because it feels different than when you argue about movies and shows. So, like, what is it uh, about the way in which we uh, identify ourselves through our feelings about rock music? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, I actually, I don't love arguing anymore like the way I did when I was younger. It's funny. I was on sure. uh, Sound Opinions with uh, with with uh, Jim DeRogatis and Greg Cott. Yeah, I love that. Show. I listen to it every every week, and I've been on there, and they're they're great. Those guys. yeah, and and I I really appreciate those guys because they were they were nice to me when I was when I was young, and I, when I was working my first job at a daily newspaper, I interviewed Jim when I was twenty three, and I'm sure I was very oh, awesome. awkward, and he was very nice to me and and, and complimentary. Um, I don't, you know, it's uh. You know, defining yourself by what you like. You know, I. You know, I I write about this in in Long Road. I I think the thing that uh, I realized about music is that you know I'm not a religious person, but if I if I had a religion, it would be music, because music is the thing that makes me feel like I'm I'm a part of bigger of something bigger than myself, and not just in the sort of grand sense of you know the the sort of like spiritual nature of listening to music i don't want to get too uh ditzy here yeah, but you know go anywhere you want but you know uh, like just the fact that you can listen to like robert johnson and not have any connection to the 1930s but like you you listen to his voice and he's alive when you're listening to that record it, it's like he's like a real life ghost you know and it just feels like you're connected to the past and history and it, you're not just floating through outer space without purpose that there is a connection that you can feel to other people in your own 
background through music. You know, like with Pearl Jam, you know, they're a band that I started listening to when I was 14. You know, that their first record, 10, came out a week and a half before my 14th birthday. So they're a band I've been listening to for, you know, uh, you know, three quarters of my life or two thirds of my life. And, uh, you know, I, there's virtually nothing I have in common with my 14 year old self, except we both like Pearl Jam, you know, and I, that's something that's profound to me. You know, it's like, it connects me to a version of myself that no longer exists. That makes total sense to me. Like every phase of music I've gone in since I was 12, Bruce has been a part of. Right. He was before Bob, before for me, before REM, like Elton too, but 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 Elton had so many periods where you weren't rewarded for listening to the records. <laughs> uh, the, the body of music isn't is staggering, like because it's so right. like so the body of Elton's music is insane, you know. Um, and, and he's a Billy great Joel music st- fan too, right? And and Billy Joel stopped, right? So because Billy was around for me the same, but 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 but. But like hearing Bruce today be interviewed by Howard, there be because Ty, you know, I grew up, as you know, like surrounded by music. But the first album that was just mine when I had my own record player in my room was The River. And p- putting on, so like I can remember having the little, um, the arm that would drop the thing in the morning, like, um, and I would wake up to Ty's The Bind. And... So like there's this connection like you have to Pearl Jam. And I love Pearl Jam. It's a big deal to me too. But that thing, the band or the artist that's just been there the whole time, it just means something fucking heavy, right? Yeah. Well, and I have something similar with Bruce because one of the first rock albums I ever heard was Born in the USA, you know, which was, you know, that came out when I was six. And I remember my dad having the cassette in the car and I loved Born in the USA as like as a little kid, and so that's like forty years ago. And I'm right. I'm a big Bruce fan now. And with someone like Bruce too, uh, you know, he has written all of these songs about having a troubled relationship with his father, which he was fortunately able to mend as he grew up. But for someone like me, who's also had a not a great relationship with my dad. It's like Bruce has been the guy who has talked me through that. Like listening to Independence Day in the car by myself is like the father-son talk that I didn't get in real life, you know? And, I, and I'm hardly oh. unique in that regard. But it's like, or you listen to Blood on the Tracks and when your heart is broken and it's like, this is the only thing that understands what you're going through. He's, he's articulating things that you can't say for yourself. You know, people would say the same thing about Joni Mitchell Blue or any number of the great breakup records of all time. Um, I talked about this with Jeff Tweedy once, and he was a little dismissive of it just because I mean, he's a great interview, but he's a little, uh, he's, he's contradictory in an interview. But I, you know, because he was sort of like poo pooing the idea that, that a record can take the place of a person in your life or that it can be your friend. And he said he doesn't really think that can be the case, and which I don't believe, just from listening to his songs. I, I at least, well, I, maybe I, it's a way of taking. Maybe it's a way of trying to um, not make himself feel a certain kind of obligation. I, I can understand they, it, right? right? Yeah. I, or, um, or to sound grandiose. I mean, yeah, I mean, he he is the kind of person who kind of punctures the mythology of of, of music. I think that's his instinct because of what you're saying, the the sort of obligation. And also, you know, maybe just the grandiosity of it. But I know that's been true in my life where when there hasn't been a person who understood me, there was a record sometimes that understood me. Dude, my sophomore year of college. And this is why this is important because your books and, and this is why people should read your book. Like your books capture this feeling. And I, I would say like in college, you know, my sophomore year, which was terrible and this cold winter with this broken Jeep that I had and I loved so much. Um cold Boston winters and the Jeep with the heat that didn't work. I had two cassettes in the car. I had Nebraska and I had, um, fables of the reconstruction by mm. REM. And those things were, those records were 
what got me through. Uh, those two albums made me feel emotionally okay. Uh, right. Uh, so I, I completely understand how a record could be like that for you. And you do a great job in your books of, of articulating that. I want to, when we say arguing about music though, I mean, you can say you don't like arguing about it, but I would say that from Montaigne, the very act of writing an essay is the act of arguing a position, especially right. a critical essay, right? It right. is arguing a position by definition. Otherwise, what the fuck are you doing? And right. you're not, you're not doing profiles. You're arguing um, a position. And I guess what I'm asking you is like, what is it in that excavation? Because I know how I feel. Yeah, you joked at the beginning of this about my reaction to your Isbel list. But what that's about is like, for, for me, is trying to understand another person who sees a lot of stuff. Like globally, we both agree Jason Isbel's worth this kind of massive consideration. Right. We both understand where he fits. And then... I would look and go, well, I there's something here I don't understand, and that why, and that's right. you know what could he, what, how does somebody miss this or lean there? So like, and and I do think it's about defining. If we decide, because we've decided this stuff's really important, we've decided it's important to identify the ten most important Jason Isbell songs, right, right, and. Like, why? Why is that important? To, I argue for that. I don't mean to fight. I mean to advance an argument about that. Yeah, no, you're right. And and I, and I you, you basically said this, and I agree that I think this is probably true of anyone who writes anything. You, you want people, you want to feel like people understand you. You know, and, it, and it's bigger than just your music opinion. It's it's something essential about yourself, and you attach yourself to this thing because it's something you love. But you want to say something that expresses how you feel, and you want people to see that and go, "Okay, yeah, I understand you. I get who you are." You want to be acknowledged in in some way. I mean, all writers, if you if you are published or you have your work produced in some way. You know, you you doing television and movies like you want to be you want people to see you in some way, in some fashion. And because, yes, but I, right? I but I still want. Yeah, for sure. But if I'm walking down the street and I see somebody wearing a UFO shirt, let's say, yeah, or a hold steady sweatshirt, there's a sense and the hold steady is better because UFO that could be just a, a random British person. So it might not like, you know, because that band for people listening who don't know, like what UFO was there, they matter a lot more to British people than most American people. But like, <laughs> let's say if I saw somebody walking down the street with a whole steady shirt, there's a real chance that if I were next to that person at a bar or in a cafe, there's like a bunch of the world we would see similarly or like a bunch of cultural references we would each have takes on. And I don't know, does that exist in anything? I guess in movies, but it feels different with movies somehow because of the, don't you think, or, or does it not? Do you think it's the same, the same thing? Yeah, I mean, you don't see people wearing Martin Scorsese shirts, you know, out in right. public, you know, which maybe they should start doing that. Um, yeah, I think that idea of finding your group of people and having that be defined by a band or a genre of music. I mean, it is pretty specific to music. And, you know, I've thought about this and, you know, I think it has to do with how people consume music. You know, like if, if you love a film, it's pretty rare to see a movie, even that you love like more than five times, you know, there might be a movie that you've seen a hundred times or a handful of movies that you've seen like more than 20 times but yeah, if the you isn't me like but yes generally people but, I mean, yeah, I, but even like i know you've rewatched the godfather probably a thousand times but i'm sure there's movies that you love that you've only seen once or twice whereas a song that you love yes 
It's yes. way more common. And it's even songs that you don't even like, you've probably heard dozens of times, you know, especially right. yeah, that's a back good in the point. old days. Yes. And it, it, it just becomes a part of you through that repetition, I think, in a way that it's really hard for a film uh, or a TV show to do. I think there's also the manner of like, you know, the, the sort of authorial stamp on music that it's a lot yes. easier to say this person did this versus a film. It's really hard. Well, right. So if I, if I think person. about an album that means a lot to the two of us, like um, August and everything after. Right. There's something so particular, exactly what you're saying, which is like, yeah, there are other members of the band and I guess Dave has songwriting credit on a couple of the songs or whatever. Even Don Dixon has credit on one song as a contributing writer. But, and it's weird that we know those things. I mean, I know I'm saying that to you and you know it also. Like, it's right. not, I'm not telling you something you don't know. But, uh, but we probably think of that as Adam Duritz talking just to us. Right. And solving something for, for us. And, um, right, and it continues to have that magic for us for some reason. And people like us. Yeah, and and I'll just say that that's tr even more true for me for the next record, Recovering the Satellites, uh, which I'm going to forward. I don't know if this is controversial or not. I, I, I think I like that a little bit more than August and everything after. But also just the time of my life that that record came out. It was very important Yeah, uh, what he was – because that's such a – it's like a he's reacting to his own fame, but I think you can also read that as – a record just about having your life turned upside down and how do you deal with it? You know, it, it, it's so specific, but I think it can be applied to whatever upheaval you're going through. Um, and what a intense thing to be on the receiving end of, you know, where all these people feel connected to you because they love your record. I mean, to go back to Phoebe Bridgers, for example, I mean, she's the one, well, there's a lot of people that this is true of, but she's had a really intense reaction to her songs because a lot of people now are, you know, they listen to yes. her records and they feel like she gets them, you know, Taylor Swift that happens with, and she's like the biggest pop star in the world. I mean, that's like a, a thousand fold over, you know, most artists. Um, what a wonderful thing, but like what a terrifying thing too, you know, for yes. all, for all I these mean, people this, think this they is a perfect example of like, like I agree with everything you're saying about what a, you know, uh, an incredible achievement that album is, and 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 I actually cannot even fathom that Adam wrote Elevator Boots all those years later, and Elevator Boots is like as good as basically any track he's ever written in his life. It's like crazy to me that the guy found a way to do that now. You you know what I mean? Um, but. But uh, like I find it totally insane to think that recovering the satellites is close to uh, August and everything after, just song by song, texturally. If we went through it, like, and that's the kind of thing that I get very animated by because I'm like, well, Stevens this professional critic, but then it, you know, and it's this, it's a controversial take, and I get that it's a time in your life, but like, objectively. I mean, it's, it's not even close other than long. Like, it's just not like song for song. What he did on the first album is just like absurd. One, like, cause do you not think that first album is like one of the best albums ever made? Cause that's the thing. Like, I think that's one of the best albums ever made. It's certainly one of the best debuts. The, 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 case yeah. I'll, the, the case I'll make for the second record is that I think in terms of, I just like how that record sounds. I, I like that it sounds like a band that's been on tour for you know a year, well it's Gil Norton versus it's Gil Norton versus T Bone right and and yeah, which is the, the warmer but it's also yeah it's like the more kind of folk rock approach tour versus like a more of like a rock band type sound yeah but I also think it's because they've been on the road I think it's appropriate because it's an angrier record oh yeah I don't I I, I see I look I I'm not gonna push too hard on that I will say for you to say it's not even close is well i, just I will song object for to song. that i would just say song for song like because well first of all because around here mr jones anna begins are just they're 
they're so good. They would be the best songs on Recovering the Satellite. Like, that's the problem. They would be the three best songs on that album. And maybe, except maybe I, Along December. I, okay, because Along December. Yeah, it's staggering. That feel, I agree, it's staggering. That, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's perfect. Round Here is an amazing song, but like, Long December now feels like their most famous song to me. Even more than Mr. Jones. I think Mr. Jones has been overshadowed uh, a little bit just because it was so, it's such is a that 90s like saying, song. But but like November Rain is probably the second most famous Guns song, but you can't compare the albums, right? Like like November Rain is probably, well, no. like November Rain is probably the maybe the most famous Guns song now in a certain way. Right. Um, and, and it's because it's similar to like what along, you know, well, all right, I wanted to ask you this. It's fun to just have, this is the kind of argument. Right? <laughs> I wanted to do this because this is what, it, this is why what you do is so important and so cool and why I'm, I read you all the time, right? Because like staking out a position like that, caring about it, and then there are people like out there like me who care so much that I'm more not, I mean, you know, you and I could have a three hour conversation about this and um, literally not feel like we were wasting our time. And that's, um, amazing, I think. Uh, right. You know, uh, and amazing that you get to like live in that space. But I was thinking in terms of Pearl Jam, I was thinking about Guns N' Roses a lot. Um, and I was thinking about why, why Pearl Jam, Guns plays even bigger stadiums than Pearl Jam now. They're, um, you know, Axel, uh, and and is a is there a rock band that has been around two years longer? You know, in the on the professional right, eighty nine versus ninety one. I think I haven't looked any of this up, but is that right? Like Appetite was eighty nine. It was eighty seven. Eighty eight. Oh, eighty seven. Fine. So even more. Yeah. Four years or whatever. Um, my senior year of college, which I guess was eighty seven, eighty eight. Sure. And yet I could hardly see. And I love, I mean, there's no better from you know, Appetite for Destruction is just perfect rock album. There aren't that many perfect albums it's a perfect album whether it's the greatest is different but it's perfect for what it is um yet i can't picture you writing a consideration of guns now like um i could see a piece i could see you writing the best guns but but what is it about pearl jam that makes them and because i agree with this such a, a, a perfect band to consider in the way that you are that that doesn't make Guns N' Roses um, that uh, you know I have I have a feeling about how you're going to answer but but it, but but you know um, Guns are bigger band but, yeah uh, so what it what you know what, what's the thing why uh, I don't know I mean I I feel like someone could do it on Guns it it, it probably would have to be someone a little bit older than me although I remember when Appetite came out I mean Guns N' Roses. In the Welcome to the Jungle video was, and this is burned in my brain, I've never been more scared of a band right. than, than them in that video. And I haven't had that experience many times in my life where you're actually scared of a band, and, but in a really exciting way. And, uh, you know, because I was 10 years old when that record came out and they were, uh, I thought Axel was like actually like a psychopathic killer being electrocuted in this uh, electric chair. It totally took that image literally. Um, I think someone that you know was a little bit older and closer to that scene could could write a book about it. The thing with guns, though, they do feel in a way like they belong to everybody, just because they, in their prime, were more of a pop band. You know, they had big hits that. Uh, yeah, you know, going you know, up through the Usual Illusion era, you know, like they were having, you know, so, like so November Rain, patience, don't cry. right? So November Rain, Patience, and um, Sweet Child of Mine make them uh, where you don't perhaps you don't have as person one doesn't have as personal um, um, a connection, feeling like they're just my band. Yeah, in I mean, way I think, that like yeah, because Pearl Jam as big as they were at their peak they do feel more like a cult band in a, in a funny kind of way, even though, again, they're playing arenas. They have, they've sold tens of millions of records. Um, I also think, too, um, like I love Axl Rose as a uh, front man, and he wrote 
songs that were emotional and, and that people connected with. But it's just a different experience than listening to Pearl Jam. Like when you listen to Guns N' Roses, it's true for me anyway, like they make me feel tougher than I am and cooler than I am. They, you, know, you listen to Appetite and that's like a larger than life swaggering record. That's why people love that so much. Whereas with Pearl Jam, I think they are more of like a closed door type band. You listen to them and it brings out a different kind of emotional flavor maybe that hits people in a different kind of way. And uh, yeah, it just feels more emotional, maybe more personal than a band like GNR as great as they are. Uh, you know, they don't even when Pearl Jam, you're saying when, when, when Pearl Jam plays the anthemic songs in, in, in concert, do you think the, the kind of catharsis that the crowd members are having is more inside of that catharsis is acknowledging the broken parts in a way that guns or bands like that aren't that in a way with Pearl Jam, it's, it's, it's synthesizing the broken parts and then coming together to have those moments of catharsis. Is that part of what gets to you about what they do? I think so. And you know, you don't want to speak too broadly here or I don't because I'm sure there's people that have connected with Axel's story and he's obviously had a lot of pain in his life. And I think that's what has helped make this comeback that they've had so successful because there's something incredible about the fact that it happened at all. I like when I saw that reunion tour, you know, and I'd seen clips, so I knew what to expect. Uh, but it was like, wow, I can't, he's coming out. They're playing on time. He sounds great. It seems like they're having a good time on stage. I never thought I would get to see that. Um, but yeah, it just scratches a, a different itch, you know, I think in, in people's minds. You know, it's a similar thing of like the Stones, you know, like how how people react to them versus the Beatles. You know, like I've gone through this in my mind a lot where like I love the Beatles, but there's a part of me that loves the Stones because of the swaggering kind of larger than life thing. And also because they've been around for a long time and they've made mistakes. And I really love that when you look at rock bands. I like bands that have been around long enough to screw up and then come back from it. And then you listen to the records that aren't supposed to be any good and you realize, well, this is actually better than people thought, you know? Well, yeah, this is what's so amazing about U2 to me, who have never been my very favorite band, but like, and in a way... Pearl Jam is in, it's funny, for a long time, U2, because of the slow ascent, were, were, there are people for whom U2 is their personal band, right? It is their, right. as big as U2 got, um, because the first three albums were this slow, you know, build. Even the fourth one, right? Even Unforgettable Fire was, became big, but it wasn't, um, they weren't the biggest band in the world until Joshua Tree, five, six albums later. Whereas yeah. Pearl Jam, weirdly, was the biggest band in the world on their first album and then settled into something else. How would you describe where that... You're wearing a Grateful Dead shirt, and I wonder if that's like... You know, you've taught... You mentioned it. And they, I mean, how do you see the the, the kinship of, of, of... I mean, everyone says Fish is the Grateful Dead, but but do you think Pearl Jam, in a certain way, is, is the dead? Well, there is... A similarity in that sense of what I was saying before about them feeling like a cult band, even though they play these huge venues, you know, which is something that definitely is comparable to the dead. Pearl Jam also, there was a time in the 90s where they visited the Grateful Dead headquarters and studied how they ran their operation and particularly how they ran their mailing list and how, you know, I think one thing Pearl Jam was ahead of their time on as a rock band was realizing that we don't need to appeal to the middle. We just need to speak to the people that love us. And uh, as long as our audience feels connected to us, that that will sustain us through whatever happens in the outside music world. Uh, and which I think has been really key to their survival uh, because obviously the music world has changed dramatically since the nineties. And also, you know, Pearl Jam is, they just don't do a lot of the things that 
you're supposed to do in order to, uh, you know, stay relevant. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me. I've, I've had this conversation with a few people just promoting the book, comparing Eddie better to, to Dave Grohl, you know, like how Dave Grohl is someone who is always out there, always appearing in documentaries and on award shows. And that fits his personality because he's such a charming guy, you know, and Eddie better is a very charming guy too, but he is much less likely to put himself out in that in that kind of way and it just changes how those two guys are perceived i think even though they end up playing the same venues for the most part i mean they they both have sustained long careers but in pretty different ways well yeah for i mean dave Grohl is an incredible i one of the greatest entertainers and an unbelievable craftsman of of those melodies and, and lyrics that are really moving to people his music has never moved me uh right his songs i love it i i i in no way don't acknowledge their greatness i don't find myself transported emotionally the same way i do when i listen to so many of the other artists and part of it is that entertainer show person like almost like um Grohl's gifts are so manifest and enormous that I don't see the broken parts in the music. Where yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't take me to that place. Like this is why I love Taylor. I love Taylor Swift. Like I completely understand it. I see her through my daughter, obviously from when my daughter had whatever difficult, challenging times in, in her life. And I understood, but also like Taylor had, um, enough people trying to tear, tear her down at various times that you could feel the pain <laughs> And, um, and, and I wonder about that. Is that pain thing, basically the broken parts, the origin story of Pearl Jam, what happened to all of them, the way they came together, Eddie's primal, you know, the, the, the primal thing in Eddie's life that makes him a sympathetic character, no matter what, uh, you know, um, about his dad like does does all that stuff inform for you the journey you're going on with them i think so i mean you know the thing with pearl jam that one of the things that one of the reasons i wanted to write this book is that i feel like when people talk about pearl jam they don't really talk much about the actual songs and like how they're put together and like why they work so well and I think with Eddie Vedder in particular, you know, there's this perception that he's always expressing this personal angst. And that's obviously a part of what he does. But I think an underrated aspect of his songwriting is the empathy in his songs. He's often Absolutely. writing he's often writing from the perspective of characters. And the characters you can clearly see at times are maybe a stand-in for who he is, but, you know, he's often writing about women in his songs, for instance, and writing from a strong female point of view in a way that I think was very unique for certainly like a male rock star of the 90s. You weren't seeing a whole lot of that at the time. And, you know, I think the key for any uh, songwriter is you are expressing something personal, but the more specific it is, the more universal it becomes. It's it's one of the weird tricks about music. You know, you mentioned Adam Duritz earlier, and that was something he talked about when I when I interviewed him, where he was like, I I didn't think anyone would like my songs because I'm, there's all these proper names and you know na- names in here. I'm, I'm I'm referencing specific things that only make sense to me. How is anyone going to even understand what I'm talking about? And of course, he puts the record out, and these things he thought were so specific were actually things that those were the things that people latched onto when they heard the record. Well, I was at a, yeah, I was at a funeral the other day and talking to somebody and they said something to me about end of life stuff and what people go through. And I said immediately, I was like, well, it's like an elephant, you know, no one dies with dignity. And, um, which is Jason Isbell's song. And, and, um, and immediately thought about how specific, and that song is about these two people, about Andy and her, and how it is not 
so much of that song. I've never asked Jason at all the times we talked um, if he had any idea that that, now Cover Me Up has become this other thing, but basically Elephant is why, Elephant is the thing that happened that changed his life and all of our lives. And uh, you wonder, did he have any sense that something that specific with the word fuck in it uh, <laughs> would, you know, be the thing that just connected so deeply with so many people. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And yeah, it's the way he wrote it and the way he sings it. You mentioned when he says fuck in the song, that's actually, that's one of the parts that gets me choked up when I listen to it. Like if I had fucked her when, before she got sick, that part is one of the things uh, I get caught in. I mean, that's a, that's like, the biggest tearjerker of like the last 10 years. I mean, I, that song, I, I, I skip that song sometimes when I listen to Southeastern. Cause I'm like, I'm just, I'm not ready for this song today. I don't want to go through Dude. what elephants going to put me through. I, uh, I, I just want to have like a nice light listen. So I'm, I'm skipping that song sometimes. Cause it's, that's it's funny. Just, a nice light listen to Southeastern's. Well, you know what I mean? You can listen to I mean, it. You know. I know, but that's still hilarious, but yes, I agree. You know, I no, I agree with you. Um, but 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 in the, the context of Southeastern, of, that one is especially heavy. It's like I'll go to Super Eight. He's singing about yeah. killing himself in a hotel room. That's like that's heavy, but it's. I know I'm not going to be a puddle of goo at the end of it. No, like but and the um, yeah. The, uh, I the other night we went out to the show here in New York a couple months ago, and and uh, I just wrote him the day before. I was like, not public thing. It's not really a request, but if. I could really use to hear songs that she uh, sang in the shower and he played it. And um, yeah, I was a fucking puddle from that one, man. Like, because uh, that that song, like, um, and this is the gift of like what the greatest writers give you. The specificity of the writing in that song makes me so grateful that someone like, you know, the first verse of that song, you're like, I have this incredible gratitude that somebody worked that hard his whole life to become that good. That he could deliver something that simply and trust us to get it with the subtlety of that, you know, uh, and it's, it wrecks me. Um, and, and, uh, and I guess that I want to ask you about this. Like, have you thought about why, just because you've thought about him a lot and you've written about him a lot, of the older age group, so older than Phoebe and Lucy and um, Juliana and and Adrian Lunker, all, you know, the older thing, right? Is Have you thought about why Jason, why the mantle is his, why he's the person and how it happened kind of late in a career. Like, yes, he got sober and made the clearest, you know, this way. But Southeastern didn't have to break through the way that it did. And to me, it broke through in the best way, which was people just losing their minds and making people, sitting people down and making the argument and going like, sorry, whatever the fuck else you're doing, block your afternoon off and shut your phone down and like just fucking listen to this. But have you thought about why everybody has acknowledged that's the guy? Like, what is that? How did that happen? Is that the last person? Is it going to happen again? Has it happened since then? Well, there's this guy, Zach Bryan. I don't, I don't know if you've listened to him, but he's actually, he has a record called American Heartbreak that came out this year. There's 34 I'm songs I'm a big country music. I'm a big country music fan. I like Tyler Childress, but he sounds like Jason. I think Tyler's I mean, really good. Zach, Zach Bryan is like the next one in that chain because, uh, his record, American Heartbreak, if you haven't heard it, it it's like a monster. Just, again, there's 34 songs on it. That record's actually a pretty big hit, too. Uh, yeah, but, no, I know. Uh, he's, uh, he's doing great. You know, I just want to circle back quick. You were talking about songs that you sang in the shower. When I One of the times I interviewed Jason, I asked about that song and how he references specific songs in the song. And I was like, did you... Like, did it take a lot of time for you to figure out what songs to put in the song? Because I think he's like, wish you were here. Yeah. Breakfast in bed. And he's, you know, the great thing about talking to Isbell is that he is uh, a rare 
songwriter who is analytical about his own work and he's willing to be analytical in an interview. Like a lot of people don't want to do that. He's, but he's, he could be a music critic because he's good at breaking down songs and why yes. they work. So I thought that was cool how well, it's like, well, I could, you know, I, I couldn't plug well, in. Well, you asked him, but what did he say? What did he say when uh, you asked him? I, he... I think he just said that, no, like, yeah, I did. I, 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 I put a lot of thought into it because it mattered what the songs were and like why. Oh, that's awesome. Like what they signified and, and all that. But as, as far as like why he's the guy, I think Jason for a long time felt like everyone's best kept secret that he was someone that, and again, this isn't true anymore because he's acknowledged as the man as far as, you know, Americana singer songwriters, but you know, in that mid 2010s era, right after Southeastern came out and, you know, he had put out other records before that, that I think are quite good, but I think there was a perception that he wasn't living up to his potential. And I, and I think that was true for himself. I, I think he's talked about that. Well, yeah, because he'd already written Decoration Day and Goddamn Lonely Love with right. the truckers and, 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 and Outfit. And um, it was like, and never going to change. And it's like, you, you did that with them, so w- let's go, you know. And yeah, yeah, some yeah. of the solo songs were great, but right. I, I hadn't thought of that, but that's he, right. Right, he'd already written Decoration he was, Day. He was kind of like an athlete that comes out of college and you feel like, oh, he's going to take over the league. And then, right. you know, pulls a hamstring or, you know, he's just underperforming. And then he puts out Southeastern. I mean, I think the record before that, uh, too, uh, and I'm blanking on the name of the record, uh, Here We Rest, really sets up Southeastern. I think that's actually a, a quite a strong record. But it was like he's living up to his potential now. Like he's now the all-star that we all thought he would be. So if you had been invested with him since Drive-By Truckers, there yes. was that gratification. And then there was also that thing you're, that you just said where you're like, he, for a long time, he was the guy that you wanted to stop people and go, have you heard this record? Like this record is great. And you got to blow people's minds by playing yeah. it for them. Uh, well, you know? I... I think that's right. I remember walking down the street here because I was a Truckers fan and I knew his music and I was a fan. And I remember like making sure the day it came out, I d- downloaded it, you know, or whatever. On, on, and I, I remember walking in the village and that, and just calling three friends like right. My, I called my friend Jonathan like immediately, like like holy fucking shit, something's going on here. And he was like, I'm listening right now. I can't believe it. And uh, that feeling. There's a couple more things. Uh, how do you listen now? I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in this as a, someone who writes about music. I mean, how do you, how do you find the time, but, but more than that, how do you use the listening time? How do you decide what you're gonna give your attention to? Well, as someone who, and I can't believe I get to say this, but I'm paid to listen to music, which is a pretty cool gig to have, and I'm very grateful for it. You know, during the day, I'm always listening to stuff. So there's stuff, you know, I'm listening to it on my computer for the most part during the day. And then after work, I do have stuff that I listen to for fun, you know, because usually the stuff I'm listening to for work, you know, I'm like, I'm writing about it. I'm reviewing a record and I'm enjoying that. I think to be a good critic, you have to, you can't lose the part of yourself that's a fan. You know, if you're yes. just if you're just responding to it in an intellectual way, I think you lose an important element. And are of you the whole are thing. you listening? Are you are you listening alone, without emailing and texting and t- tweeting, or are you like, you know what I mean? How do you listen? All of the above. I will listen while I work. I will like I'm an old school guy, so. I still love CDs. I'm addicted to CDs. I will burn things on CD so I can yeah. listen to it on my stereo with headphones while I'm just walking around my office. I don't know if you get to do this living in New York, but the greatest place to listen to music is in the car. I oh, love yeah. I love listening to music in the car. It's it's where I can really play it loud. I can't really do that in my office because I have other people living with me here. Uh, but I can do it in the car. I, I've always loved driving around 
and listening to music ever since I was a teenager. It's something I still love to do. I always like to give it the car test. Any album I'm writing about, if I can listen to it in the car and it speaks to me there, that's important to me. So I, yeah, I, I, I really, I really I try to, I really try to do different contexts, you know, uh, because, because I think I like listening to a lot of different kinds of way, but I also, I think it's a good way to get a different perspective because music coming out of your laptop, it's not the same as coming out of like an actual I agree. Stereo. Do you, and do you still use me? Like I have a thing like in the mornings, I bike a lot of the time to not, we're just about getting to where I can't anymore because of the weather, but I bike a lot and I, I love to listen to music on uh, in the morning. I won't do podcasts or audiobooks because I want it to affect my state i want to get in a flow state and like music is the best thing for that so um i get that moving and 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 do you still use music like as a way to regulate emotions or tap into emotions or oh yeah like absolutely separate from your business that's what you mean why you still listen for joy like you're just your enjoyment yeah i mean uh, absolutely I, I there's a time usually about a half hour, 40 minutes after I get done working where I just p- play something that I want to listen to on headphones while hanging out at my office. And it's a good way to decompress at the end of a day. Where- Last thing. Have you, uh, have you, have you gotten, has anyone slipped you in advance of the Bob Dylan book? Uh, the, Oh yes. Yes. Yeah. Did I started reading book, that over the weekend. New book. Yeah. Yeah. I started I- I just think it's the best thing ever. I, I can't ah, believe how great it is. I, I highlighted this one part where he's writing about this bluegrass song called Ruby, Are You Mad? by the Osborne Brothers. And he compares bluegrass to uh, heavy metal. And he actually types out the words Ingve Malmsteen, uh, yes. which I was not expecting to read that in, in the Bob Dylan book. I his, was like, you are the his man. His knowledge... It's true. He's still the best. Like he's, you read that book and you're like, yeah, the Nobel Prize. That makes complete sense to me. He knows everything. Like he's still well, the best a sense writer. Of humor. He's yes. so funny too. I love his. I love his playfulness. Uh, it, me too. Like even in that in that pump me up piece, he takes little subtle digs throughout the whole thing. Even as he loves uh, Elvis, right. he still takes little little digs at him. Right. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 he he just he mixes up the arcane and the insightful and like the jokey, just seamlessly. You know, he can just cite something. It's like how the hell does he know that? And then just deliver a perfect dry one liner. You know, at the end of it, I I, I don't know. I, I it it reminds me of that theme time radio hour show that he used to do. Like those, like a lot yeah, of the writing. Eddie, yeah, I agree with you. So like the introductions that he would do. It feels like that. And your book is also great. Uh, Long Road, Pearl Jam, and the Soundtrack of a Generation. Um, but and as you know, I really dig all your books. Um, and uh, I, I, I didn't read the Radiohead book, but I dig all the rest of them and I've read <laughs> all the rest of them. I just didn't read Thank it, you. so I can't speak to it because they're not you. my band. Uh, no, and, and, and you blurbed the uh, Hard to Handle, which uh, we with Steve and I both really appreciated and... Yeah, yeah, well, thank you so much. T- terrific, man. And um, listen, dude, keep doing what you're doing. Um, I love reading you, even when I uh, wildly uh, disagree with you. So, uh, thanks, and Stephen Hyden. I will. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. You can find Stephen on the various social medias. You can't find me on Twitter anymore. I'm out for a while. Uh, I'll see what he does. I'll see what Elon ends up doing. But um, for a minute here, I'm just not going there. You can find me on Instagram or TikTok. Uh, and uh, everybody go get Stephen's books and uh, we'll see you next time.